Welcome to our Think Kingdom podcast. This week begins a new week as well as a new series we're calling Live Ready, Remaining Faithful in Difficult Times. So let's go ahead and jump in and see what God's word has for us with our lead pastor, Antoine Lassiter. Tell you what, let's just jump right into it. Listen, um, you see that clip? You, you see the clip with the guy training? Um, I think we're entering this season where I believe that we're training for something. Uh, Mike, see, in my lifetime, I used to watch uh, Mike Tyson with my grandfather. So um, I remember watching Mike Tyson fight, and my grandfather would say, good God Almighty, that boy good. Um, because of just the, the sheer what do you call it, the sheer brute force that he used to um, battle his opponents. And uh, he was quoted as saying, uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And um, I remember uh, him breaking that thing down, uh, and he was saying that people were asking him before the fight, like, what's going to happen? And Tyson said um, they were talking about his opponent, his style, and how he was like, he was like sort of like a dancing. He, he would do a lot of lateral movements. And um, um, they was like, how are you going to defeat this guy? And he very cavalier said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And then they stop in fear or they freeze. And it's hard to do what you learned. What, it's hard to do what you have been taught when the punches keep coming. So Mike Tyson was saying, listen, when we have all these plans and we have these plans for this battle, this, this match, but when the punches come, it's like you have a, a tendency to uh, forget what you were taught. And so I'm not a boxer, but I love um, the way Mike Tyson used to fight. And he said that every time there was a punch, there was a counter punch. So he trained himself how to take the blows while also attacking. But his training regiment was bananas. His training regiment was started will start at 4 a.m. and he will get up and, and run for about three to five miles. He will come back home about six, take a shower, go back to bed, wake up about 10, and, the, and, and then the training really began because he will watch what he ate. He couldn't eat anything when he was preparing the battle. About 12, he would, he would go through 10 rounds of sparring. And then three sets of calisthenics, pumping his heart. And then at two, he'll have lunch. About three, it's another four to six rounds of sparring, bag work, slip, belt, slip bag, jump rope, willy bag, focus mitt, speed bag, and then 60 minutes on a stationary bike. And then three more sets of calisthenics. By five o'clock, there'll be more, there'll be four more sets of calisthenics routine, and then he would do a slow shadow boxing, focusing on one technique at a time in order to master the mechanics. And then seven, he would eat another balanced meal. Couldn't eat anything. And so he would, and then at eight o'clock, he would do another 30 minutes on the exercise bike for recovery purposes, and, and he would not do any resistant training about eight. He would turn in at nine, watching all his film, watching his mistakes, watching his opponent, only to get up four o'clock the next morning to do it all over again. For a 36-minute fight, he would train seven days a week, Seven days a week, watching what he ate, seven days a week, eight to ten hours every day for nine months for a 36-minute fight, which in his heyday will only last about 30, 45 seconds. So he would do all this work to prepare himself to fight. How to remain faithful in difficult times when the punches come and girlfriend, they coming. When the knockout seems inevitable. When you don't feel like the training is enough. When the blood from the cuts burn your eyes. 
when the voices from the corner become distorted and you can no longer hear what your coaches are screaming in the corner. When it feels like the round won't come to an end and you're struggling and suffocating for breath, will we do what we were taught? Because it all comes down to how many punches you can take. You have been training well, well, some of us. Because if we get master one technique, we destroy the whole workout by what we eat. And so we're grasping for air because we won't do the work required for endurance. And our stamina won't even allow us to make it through the first round. And so we struggle constant and constant. And so we are one week removed from the greatest day in history, Easter. But the story doesn't just end from that celebration. So we talked last week, the road from the resurrection, and now we're talking about living ready because the resurrection is not just our get to heaven card. We still on earth. So what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now when the punches come? What are we going to do now when, the, when, when our opponent's just putting in the body work and taking our breath? Are we training to live ready? Or are we looking? Look, there's two attitudes that we have that I I saw predominantly in in high school. Shout out to my high school friends who are watching. That some of the bullies were looking for a fight. They will go on the aggressive and they they would literally go on the aggressive. And there are times that I believe that we got to... We got to be more aggressive when it comes to the things of God, right? Then there are times when we just have to take a defensive posture, but that does not mean that we should not learn how to take a punch. Because everything will not, man, listen, y'all know my heart. If you're watching and you're confused, just just DM me. Uh, I, I hear people decreeing and declaring, but don't know how to suffer well. The the scriptures are clear. Listen, I believe that not only that we can enjoy life, but if or when persecution comes, what is our response? Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is about to set this tone for the next few weeks. And you know what? We've been giving Peter a hard time. Rightfully so, but we've been giving Peter a hard time. So Peter busts open the door, 1 Peter 1 and 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, trick question. Who wrote 1 Peter? Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody's like, well, I'm not sure now. 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who you writing to, Peter? To those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynian, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. My grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. Man, please, I want you to, if you got a, what we call a paper Bible, circle that word inheritance. Uh, If you're taking notes, circle that or write that word inheritance. Uh, It's very important. Um, Man, write that word down. It's very important, very important. Um, And that inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the chosen, those who are scattered. And you are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Thank you, Jesus. 
you rejoice in this. Why? Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which through though perishable is redefined by fire, may resort in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith. And that's the salvation of your souls. The goal of our faith is not to get stuff. The goal of our faith is for the salvation of our souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace uh, that would come to you search and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to capture a glimpse of these things. Peter, Peter, Peter is the author of First Peter and, and consequently, 2 Peter, uh, Peter learned from Jesus for three years, firsthand, up close, and personal. Jesus provided the best example of what it looked like to be holy. Jesus was and is the model. Who better look, who, um, who can we look to? Who can we turn to? It's Jesus. Jesus is being, uh, Peter is pointing us through this letter to Jesus. Now, Peter was both bold and cowardly. Peter was a part of Jesus' inner circle, along with James and John. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone except the name of Jesus. No one speaks in the Gospel as often as Peter did. And Jesus spoke more to Peter than to, than to any other individual. Peter was that dude who actually rebuked Jesus for speaking of his death. Peter is that same dude that walked on water. Peter asked, how many times should we forgive someone? Peter uh, told the Lord Jesus, hey, don't wash my feet. And then when Jesus said, okay, if I don't wash your feet, you have no parts. And then Peter was like, well, wash my whole body. Like, like this is Peter. Peter, when the, the, when, the, uh, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter is that dude that kept a pocket knife and uh, cut Malchus' ears off. Um, and Jesus looked at Peter and was like, bruh, like, <laughs> what are you doing? Peter is that guy. Uh, Peter uh, was the one who said, Lord, where can we go? When, when Jesus said a hard saying, like uh, Jesus had this crowd, no one can thin a crowd like Jesus. So when Jesus saw the crowd and the multitudes of people following him, Jesus would say, okay, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no parts in me. Everybody was like, okay, all right, that's enough. Like, too good to be true, Jesus. And they left. And then, and then Jesus looked at the disciples, you leaving too? Peter was like, where can we go? We, 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 we've given up everything to follow you. Peter is that dude notoriously uh, reminds us, uh, well, we remember him by being so bold that art the Christ, the son of the living God. When he, Jesus asked him, well, who do you say that I am? And then when Jesus says, man, flesh and blood ain't, ain't man, you, you good. And then, and then uh, Peter's that same guy when Jesus says, look, I'm about to go. And, and Peter speaks up, even if I have to die with you. I would not deny you. And Jesus looks at him and was like, you about to deny me three times. <laughs> That's Peter. So Peter, Peter, you see a transformation for Peter. 
Like, like Peter goes from like taking his clothes off and jumping and go fishing to walking on water, like boldly out the boat. And then in one breath, he's boldly walking on water in this storm. And then he's like, and then he sinks. That's Peter. But something happens when the Holy Spirit falls on Peter. Now, Peter um, is the same guy who will be instrumental in establishing the church. I want y'all to see this. We're going somewhere. Uh, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He saw the Gentiles become a part of the faith. And Peter, that guy who denied Christ, he survived arrest, beatings, and threats. And church history says that Peter was that dude that when they were about to crucify him, when they were about to kill him, his attitude was, hey, don't crucify me this way. Crucify me upside down. I ain't worthy to be crucified like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is that guy who, once they start preaching Jesus and he um, got beat up uh, and they warned him, don't you preach Jesus. He says, I'd rather obey God than man. Now, that's the Peter now that's writing this letter to Christians who are now beginning to feel the pressure of being Christian. Oh, it's cool being Christian when we in. I mean, it's the, Lord, first of all, I want to thank, every award show, I want to thank God, Lord Jesus Christ. I want to thank him. And it's like, bro, have you listened to your own music? Um, <laughs> but that's, that's fashionable. That's what, you know, living when you are the, when you are the dominant culture, that's what it do. But what happens like the, the chosen that are scattered living like exiles? Oh, now you got to put some meat on them bones. And, and so what Peter is saying, listen, even when you suffer, God's still good. Even when you're ridiculed, even when you mock pastor, pastor, what are, what are you saying? I'm saying that Peter, that dude who we see that transformation from the coward guy who was focused on business and handling his business, when that thing transitions and now he has a revelation of who Jesus Christ is, he looked different now. So this is a letter that he's writing about 30 years after the resurrection. And he's, this letter is to encourage the reader that even when you suffer, God is sovereign. Even when it gets hard, even when the temptation of sin, even when you are suffering for his name's sake, it's all good. That's who's writing this letter. And he's writing to the chosen, living as exiles, understanding that this place is not our home. Even the homes where we rest our heads belong to God. Oh, it's hard to preach this, especially when we are so focused on individualism. It's hard for us to preach a message that says everything that we have or own belongs to God and should be set aside for his use. Whoa, what? My money, my health, my kids, even the place that I live, he has orchestrated me to be a missionary in that place I live. How come you don't know now one of your neighbors? When he sit, boy, he says, man, very important. Some translations say pilgrims. Imagine when we go to college. Well, outside of me, who really enjoyed college and had an extended stay in college, most of us, most of us, man, Lord help me, most of us understand that college is temporary. Like I don't put roots or flags into college because I'm there for a season and I leave. Even raising our children, they're there for a season. They are temporary residents. More so the spiritual application that even living in this great country of ours, this country does not belong to us because when it comes to whether I'm a 
kingdom citizen or an American citizen, the kingdom trumps America because we are foreigners. And so we inhabit, we may inhabit the lands of our birth, but we inhabit it as temporary residents. So we do share in the responsibilities of citizenship, but we also endure all disabilities as aliens. Every foreign land is our native land, and every native land is a foreign land. And we pass these days upon this earth as citizens in heaven. And Peter is calling out the chosen. This is Peter's way of encouraging the reader. And so according, I think it's verse number Yeah, verse number two, according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, remember who's writing it and who he's writing to. He's writing to the exiles, the, the, the one who, who don't build houses. They live in tents figuratively because they realize the place is not our home. And, and so the, there's a translation that, that's, that uses the word elect, election, chosen, and what he's saying is that's the foreknowledge of the Father. God's foreknowledge is more than knowing what's going to happen ahead of time. And so whenever God foreknows people, he achieves his purpose and brings to to pass what he foreknows. In other words, when God called you, How do I know he called me? Because I answered and we're chosen. I believe in Christ. I believe that Christ was uh, lived a perfect life, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, knew no sin, and became um, the substitute, became the sacrifice for sin. Christ died, removed sin, removed the wrath of God from us. So we are chosen, and it's more than him knowing my response, your response to the gospel. He knows more than our response. The Holy Spirit sanctifies, remember, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through what? The sanctifying work of the Spirit. Why? To be obedient. The Spirit comes to sanctify us Why? So that we can be obedient to who? To Jesus, through God. The blood of Jesus is the seal of a new covenant. But let me take a step back before I go too deep. This just isn't about going to heaven, but how we live here on earth. Shortly after the resurrection, uh, the disciples are huddled up in the upper room, the upper room, they're huddled up in the upper room and the spirit of God comes. And then the disciples say, hey, when will you restore Israel? And Jesus is like, bruh, my kingdom is not a place. that my, My kingdom is far more reaching than what you're believing. And so when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, it's not just to speak in tongues. It's not just the, 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 it's more than that. It's to bear witness to who Jesus is. So being chosen leads to being sanctified, which leads to obedience. Sanctification is God's will for us. To sanctify something is to set it apart for special use. We have been sanctified, set apart for special use. I want you to sort of soak that in. We've been set apart for special use. Holiness. Now, when I was growing up, holiness was used in the church every third word. You got to be holy. Holy. And so we look at holiness as something unattainable. Well, it's true. You cannot obtain 
holiness by your works. We are being sanctified through the work of the Spirit. What's the work of the Spirit? When we became born again, when sinners are spiritually dead, no, sinners are spiritually dead, but we receive spiritual life through faith in Christ. The Bible says then we are born again, the second birth. Why does this Why is this important? Because only those who are born again have their sins forgiven and have a relationship with God. And we are now referred to as the children of God. Here's the problem. It's the overuse of a word belittles its power. Everyone is not a child of God. Man. Now, everyone's created in the image of God, right? And we all have characteristics, but everyone is not a child of God. A child of God recognizes who Jesus Christ is, and then by faith, In Christ, his atoning work on the cross, we are now considered a child of God by having faith in Jesus Christ. Newsflash, if you have not been born again by confessing your faith in Jesus Christ, who he says he is, and by the acknowledgement of his life, Perfect life, sinless life, without sin, burial, and the resurrection, sir, ma'am, you are not a child of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved, how? Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God that leads us to salvation. If you reject the gift of God, you are not saved. When we are saved, we are born again, spiritually renewed, and now are children of God by right of the new birth. The new birth believing in Christ, we become children of God. Simply put, trusting in Jesus Christ, the one who paid this penalty of sin when he died on the cross, is the means to be born again. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. New life. So you hear churches with their names, new life. Churches like new birth. Because we are recognizing that we have faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. We accept that we're sinners. He's he's the Savior. There's only way, there's only one way in which men can be saved. Period. Period. We are sanctified, why? For obedience. So sanctification is a process. So we're chosen for sanctification and obedience. But remember, we fall short. So let's continue uh, to see what uh, Peter says to us. So he says, um, verse number two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, gotta, so the Old Testament, so the Old Testament, um, the sprinkling of the blood did three things. Number one, the sprinkling of the blood establishes the new covenant, establishes a covenant, covenant between man, God, and man. And so when the, law, when the Lord wrote the message of his law upon the stone tablets for Moses, 
he was prescribing the terms of the Old Testament. The Bible is split up in two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, God reveals the law through the Old Testament. The New Testament, what Jesus Jesus orchestrates, is what we are under. Got it? Okay, so I'm going to ask this again. Got it? So when we... Uh, So because we are Christ's followers, we're under the New Testament, the New Covenant. So establishment of the covenant. The second thing uh, that um, the sprinkling of blood does is the ordination of priests. So in order for the priests to be used in service to God, they sprinkle. And you can read in Exodus chapter 29, they sprinkle blood in the back of the ear. That is how the priests became, um, they they ordained priests. And the third reason why they sprinkled the blood um, is purification. And so we we had to continue to do that. We had to continue to repeat the sprinkling of the blood. Stay with me. I'm going somewhere. I know it's a little heavy for Sunday morning, but this is the foundation as to why we can endure suffering. And to to jump ahead, um, we can endure suffering because our salvation is assured. But before I get there, (laughs) the law of God is the what, but the grace of God is the how. The law, Old Testament, the, Jesus orchestrates the law, truth, and grace. So he combines the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we benefit from his sacrifice. The, Lord, the law of God reveals sin, but the grace of God forgives sin. You see, you see the inner workings of the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament? The Old Covenant, the Old Testament reveals God's law. You did this wrong. But it's the New Testament, God's grace, that forgives us for doing the wrong. The law of God indicates man's problems. The grace of God provides God's remedy for man's problems. The law of God demands performance by man. Do this, do this, do this, do this. But the grace of God offers provision from God. The law of God is the standard, but the grace of God is the means. It's how I get there. How do I meet the standard? Here's the law. How, every pastor, every time I try to do, I fail. Absolutely. The law of God is the spiritual measuring rod that evaluates lives. But the grace of God is the nurturing resource that produces spiritual life. The law of God tells us the character of God, but the grace of God reproduced that character in us. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament and the dichotomy, the the challenges that we're in, that we will have to continually to do the sprinkling and the sacrifices of animals because God is holy and God demands justice. And so when we cannot fulfill, we had to kill an animal. And we had to keep repeating it over and over again. Even the priests, we couldn't even go to God's presence. We had to, we had to, um, uh, we had to set, we had to set aside uh, someone to go on our behalf. So in order for us to go to the, most, to the holy place, they had to ordain priests. And the priests will, will offer sacrifices to God. Going into the holy place, which is the temple, the tabernacle of God, will go into the holy place on behalf of the people. And then the high priest will go to the most holy place. But we uh, were uh, restricted into entering God's presence. And we couldn't get to God's presence as a Gentile because he had a special people that he sent, he set aside for them. The Hebrews, the children of God, Israel. Jesus comes in and now we have access to the presence of God. 
The old covenant was like a working arrangement that God had with his specific people. A sacrificial system that allowed cleansing from sin, but it was only temporary. It had to be repeated. And so we ordained priests to represent the people. The people could never come directly into the presence of God. They always had to have somebody in the middle to go to God on their behalf, an intercessor. Someone who, would, who, who they would tell their, their sins to, and then they would go to God. And it had to be repeated over and over and over. We do not understand the glory of the New Testament because we don't understand the rigors and the religiousness of the old. Only priests could enter the holy place. Man. So if you ever want to talk, if you ever want to do a study on the New Covenant, read the book of Hebrews. But Jeremiah 31 and 33, prophet Jeremiah, prophet Ezekiel, prophet Jeremiah uh, prophesied, I will put my law within them and I will write it, the law, on their hearts. That's the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so mm, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Pastor, what are you saying? When I want to do right, uh, when I want to do wrong, the Holy Spirit convicts me. And, and so even if I cross over that line and do wrong, the Holy Spirit convicts me. That's the evidence that God is working in me. It's sanctification. And what he is instructing us to do, if we can understand the covenant that we have with God, not this fluff stuff, but the covenant that we have with God, and he is sanctifying us towards obedience. It's the struggle of all of us. And so we say things like, he'll never put more on you than you can bear. He's actually referring to temptation, that he will give you a way of escape when you're tempted to do wrong. Sin within itself is too much for us to bear. So he says, I will put my, I will put my statues in your heart. I will put my spirit in you. Now, you don't have to come to a place. I am in you. And so when we come together to worship, and you got the Spirit of God, and you got the Spirit of God, and you got the Spirit of God, when we come together, our hearts rejoice. We live ready by understanding what Christ has done for us. Let's be careful not to cheapen what God has done. Let's be careful that we don't take for granted the name of Jesus. I understand how, you know, we need to be in love. We need to, yes, because he commands us to, to love our neighbors and to love our enemies. But some of the stuff I'm seeing, people of God, ain't got nothing to do with God. We need to be mindful that the work of Jesus on the cross establishes for us what we could not do for ourselves. Yes, it's overwhelming. Sin is exhausting. Yes, yes it is. It's quicksand. Sinking. But he has given us once to settle that sin issue. And that's his son, Jesus. And that's why in the next verse, Peter sings praises. Because pre Peter is understanding what's happening to God's people even in the midst of suffering. And that's why he busts open the door, figuratively, with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his, grace, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into what? A living hope. Why are we not, why when we feel pressure, it doesn't consume us? Because, Tim, we have a living hope. Ah, a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We should be pitied if Christ didn't, risen, didn't rise. That's why Paul says we, are, we should be considered fools. 
But because he lives, ah, and into an inheritance that is imperishable. Listen to these words. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Oh, you couldn't keep your salvation if you tried. Boy, don't you fool yourself. Man, thank you, Jesus. Do you know yourself? So let me get to my message. That wasn't my message. <laughs> live with hope. If we're going to live ready, we've got to live with hope. And we live with hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And why do we have living hope? Because the inheritance that we have, number one, is imperishable. That means it's enduring forever. It's permanent. It's untouched by death. It's undefiled. It's not corrupt. It's clean. It's pure. It's unstained by evil. It's unfading. It doesn't lose value in time. Many times, things that we are finding joy in is temporary. We have to understand the foundation into which we are placed into. Faith in Christ keeps the soul safe until the Lord comes. Verse number five, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter describes salvation that's provided by Christ. He sees that the hope produced by the resurrection of Christ secures salvation by a faith which is deepened by trial. Verse number six, you rejoice in this. How can I rejoice in suffering? Because he got me. If I wrote, if I wrote my own version and translation, he got me and he got you. Bad English. So suffering is brief. Trial is brief. But inheritance is eternal. So that proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which through perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Because you are receiving the goal of your faith. Pastor, what is the goal of my faith? The salvation of our souls. The goal of salvation is the transformation of who we are. And that's why we rejoice. Verse number 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that will come to you searched and carefully, searched and carefully investigated. They inquired until what time what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that we, sh we would follow. When you read the psalmist, when you read uh, the Old Testament prophets and they're foretelling uh, the, the Messiah, the Christ, it's the spirit of God working in them um, Speaking to, a, uh, speaking to a time that's surely to come, and we have benefits from what the prophets were saying. We have benefits from what the psalmist was writing, and now we actually reap the benefits of a Savior that has come, that was being told, we've been spoken about in the Old Testament. Let me finish with these three points. Uh, how can I live with hope? The first point is the assurance of salvation. We have the assurance of salvation. That's why we can praise God. That's why we have a living hope. We, we are born again into a hope that is alive, sure, and certain. A hope that's grounded in God himself and his promises. A living hope that survives the various trials and challenges we may face. It's the bounce back. It's the resiliency. It's real and because of Christ. That's why we, because we have what Christ has done for us on the cross, we have the assurance of salvation because of our faith in him and what he accomplished. Suffering is to come, but we must stay focused on what we have been birthed into. The hope is found in Christ that things will get better. And even if we die serving him, we know that we live on. It's temporary. Point number two, we have an everlasting inheritance. This just 
This isn't just for tomorrow. This also is for right now, and it's also for eternity. It applies to our inheritance in Christ now. Guess what? It never perishes. It never spoils. It never fades. Our focus is God's faithfulness to his promise, not stuff. So when I'm talking about suffering, I'm not talking about some of the things that we're struggling with on this side because of maybe that. No, I'm, I'm talking about the suffering for his name's sake. Remember, blessed are, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who what are persecuted for my name's sake. It's that reoccurring theme that he sets us apart and for setting us apart, some will endure suffering. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. A new life brings a new identity. Point three. First point was assurance of salvation and everlasting inheritance was point number two. Point number three, a coming salvation. That's the antidote for suffering. The reality of it is we live in a broken world. and Our faith will be tested. But suffering uncovers genuine faith like a treasure. And that's why he says when you are refined, when you are refined, um, when you are refined like, like gold, the impurities drop away from you. Faith is defined by trial and is also deepened by it. That's faith. You, it's been said a lot, uh, and it's also, it has become somewhat of a cliche that faith that's not tested can't be trusted. But the reality of it is that there's an antidote for this present suffering. And the antidote is Christ's return. While we're on this side, living in a broken world, living where sin still has this place in this world, we have a new hope. We have a new, we have Christ returning. And that's why as we are dispersed, living as aliens, living as foreigners, living as immigrants, if you will, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to be witnesses to the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because we want to share the hope. Be ready to give a reason for your hope. Why are you so hopeful? Why, despite what things look like, I still have why, when it's not what I see, isn't what he said, I still have hope. How can, can even in the midst of crazy sufferings that our brothers and sisters are experiencing all across the world, they still share their hope? Because it's the Christ that's working in them. And they have the assurance that though they may, though we may perish on this side, we have an assurance of our faith in Jesus Christ. That he will save us. We won't be consumed. 2 Corinthians 1 and 8 says, we think you ought to know dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. Listen to this. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. That's how we're able to live ready. We live ready because we know the punches are coming. 
the trainings that God has given us, the, the regiment of gathering, uh, worshiping together, encouraging one another, the, 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 the uh, tools that God has given us, the small groups and the encouragement. But the most powerful tool that he's given us is his word. His promises are both yea and amen. If he said it, he's going to do it. So as we stand to your feet, I want to encourage you. The reason why you can live ready is because you have an assurance of your salvation. My salvation is in the Lord. So whatever happens temporarily to me, I have an everlasting, enduring inheritance. And even the present suffering, there's an antidote for it. Because it's the return of the king that will wipe every tear, that sickness and disease will no longer be an issue. And we can stand and boldly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even in the midst of challenges and I can praise him when I don't feel like it because my living hope is in him. And that's why he's telling us, y'all live ready. Live ready. Live ready to be able to give an answer to someone who's been watching you. How you keep your confidence because my confidence is in Christ. How your wits are not about you. How, how have you not lost your mind? Because my confidence is in Christ. How can you counsel single moms, being a single mom with your struggles? Because my hope is in Christ. I don't come with much. I come. I come with one thing, Tiffany. I don't come with excellency of speech. I don't come because I got everything together. My hope, your hope, our hope is in Christ. So if we're going to live ready, we need to live with hope first. Because if when the pressures come, Brandon, and they will come, when I fall and I will fall, I can point them back to Jesus. We are not the standard. He is. So when things, when my life seems to contradict what I know, it's Him. Pastor Antoine jump-starting our new series, Live Ready. We want to keep our eyes on the everlasting inheritance. This is where we draw our strength. If you are blessed by anything you hear on this podcast and you feel led to give, feel free to text the word GIVE to 704-741-3705. We want to thank you to all of our new friends who are now family of Think Kingdom. And if you haven't, go ahead and subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram under Think Kingdom. And as always, you can go back, hear this message, and so much more right here exclusively on our Think Kingdom podcast.